Hello, I'm your host, Josh Charig, and welcome to A History of Heavy Metal in 100 Songs, Episode 15, Victim of Changes by Judas Priest. This episode gets into themes of alcoholism and addiction. If you've not heard this song before, or it's been a while since you have, pause the podcast, give it a listen, and come straight back. In 1974, Judas Priest released their debut LP, Rocker Roller, produced by Roger Bain, credited with work on the first three Black Sabbath albums, but it was filled with technical issues and poor quality recordings. On top of this, it was poorly reviewed in the press and sold few copies. The band, who were already in financial difficulty, were now in even harder times, unable to even afford enough food to live. Band members tell stories of getting their girlfriends to flirt with men in the pub so they'd get drinks bought for them and then share the beers with the band. Listening back to this LP, personally, I wouldn't say it's a write-off. Whilst it's not the genre-defining album Judas Priest would go on to produce, Rocker Roller is a fun blues rock LP which entertains for 40-odd minutes, although somewhat forgettable once it's finished. Worth a listen, yes, but Judas Priest will get really into their flow with 1976 follow-up Sad Wings of Destiny, which started to carve out and define the heavy metal genre. Album opener, Victim of Changes, is an almost eight-minute epic. Originally two separate songs, they were joined together to make one grander song, which tells the story of a woman suffering from alcoholism and how it affects the relationship she has. The song opens with, I presume her partner, singing Whiskey Woman, Don't You Know That You're Driving Me Insane, screamed and high-pitched by Rob Halford, which I'll get to later. It's in second and third person, as if the narrator is talking to her in some parts and about her in others. But other than this opening line, in the bridge he says, she was mine, which insinuates their relationship. The story the narrator seems to explain is how he's tired of her alcoholism. She wants a change in life, she wants a new partner, but it's hard to change, and easier to have a drink instead. She's stuck in this way of life, getting older, meeting other men, but they eventually leave and she returns to her drink, only older. It sounds like he explains that she cheats, which is the final straw for him throwing her out. Eventually she loses her youth and beauty and becomes a victim of changes. I know it might come across misogynistic, the tragedy of a woman losing her youth and beauty, but it's not presented in that way. More the consequence of alcoholism and how it can ruin relationships and a person's life. It can prevent a person from making the positive changes they need and instead take what's good from them, changing their life slowly over time, taking their vivacity. The meaning of the song has been debated and it seems there's no official line from the band here. Is the victim of changes the woman or the man in this song? Some say the story is more about the woman who has passed her prime and drinks to cope with it. This probably comes back to the death of the author, as explained in episode 7, and the ambiguity of the title and the style of the lyrics leave it open for us to colour it with our own projections. Trawling through reviews and documentaries and forums, etc., I do laugh when men see this as a man's story of how he became fed up with his partner, completely ignoring the suffering alcoholic wife and placing the blame on her. It's very possible the song is about both people, and how both were changed by one person's addiction. An addict can bring down those around them. In episode 10, we discussed what post-war Birmingham was like, and it was this environment in which Judas Priest emerged, 
As mentioned, it was underfunded and, well, difficult. But for Priest, they claim their landscape shaped them. Alfred tells of going to school next to a sheet metal factory and the desks shaking due to the heavy machinery in that factory. These industrial sounds and this difficult environment shape the very sound of Judas Priest. Alcoholism is not that shocking in Britain. We have a unique drinking culture where it's acceptable to drink in far more situations and at more times of the day than a lot of other places. Colloquially speaking, it seems alcoholism is more normalised in the UK. The point I'm getting at is I think someone being an alcoholic will hit differently in the UK compared to Europe or America. What would be more uncommon is the fact that it's a woman. In the 70s in Britain, rates of alcoholism were far lower for women than men. Although I wonder if in reality rates were similar, but women consumed alcohol differently to men, so it just wasn't recorded the same. But anyway, going back to Rob Halford and his vocals, that's one of the big parts of not just this song, but why Judas Priest became such a key part in the history of metal. Singing has been fairly straightforward so far, with perhaps some brief proto-metal screams from Robert Plant on the Immigrant Song and loud singing from the Beatles on Helter Skelter. Halford here really starts to push it to extremes. The Immigrant Song, those shouts are imitating Viking war cries and it makes sense in that context. Helter Skelter, McCartney is singing as loud as he can at the expense of his vocal cords. Halford though, He's not just pushing the envelope on extreme vocals, he's bringing actual technique to it. He's giving the vocals and the entire song such unique character with both dynamic and pitch range. It controls the intensity of the song. From the start, as soon as he screams that opening line, it creates a tense atmosphere, especially paired with the lyrics. The chord progression follows a 1-4-5 pattern, or a blues progression to some extent. On the fifth, the highest pitch point of the song so far, Halford sings, takes another drink or two, things look better when she's through. And it makes these lyrics stand out. Those lines are pretty much the core of the song. The song is also an E minor and uses the blues scale, similar to a minor pentatonic, but it has the sharp fourth or a flat fifth creating a chromatic run of three notes. The first few songs of the series, we looked at how the blues evolved into rock and these elements changed. Here we see these blues characteristics in full force, yet this sounds nothing like a blues song. Technically speaking, Victim is more blues than Light My Fire, but Light My Fire somehow sounds more bluesy. The verses are broken up with descending guitar riff. This is interesting because descending music usually signifies the music is calming down, but when we return it seems to be more intense and creates this juxtaposition of what we expect to hear versus what we do hear. I think this works really well in this context. It's almost a representation of the cycles of this relationship, the difficult times which calm down and as things are calming down another difficult time follows. And as the narrator thinks her addiction and problems are getting better and the causes might be easing, it gets worse. In the bridge, the song builds as the narrator speaks about the affair she had and throws her out. It starts with sharp stabs, like punches. It's jarring and breaks the song up. The music continues building with guitar solos and riffs to the crescendo. 
almost like the opposite of the verse, the music builds and builds until it gets to this calm and quiet plateau. This moment of clarity has the narrator explaining the whole situation. Perhaps looking back on the relationship with the benefit of hindsight, situations are of course way clearer analysing them after than being in them. There's also a good dollop of sadness in there as he reflects on her being beautiful and how that changed. This sadness is mirrored by the guitars playing minor degrees of the scale. They're sparse, allowing these notes to really ring out and dominate the sonic landscape. From here, the song goes back into its heavy descending riffs and Halford gets to show off his powerful vocals once more. And the track comes to an end. But before we move on, something I haven't discussed is the dueling guitars which introduce the track. Two guitars harmonising off each other. Guitarist K.K. Downing said an influence of his was the band Wishbone Ash, who introduced him to the sound of two lead guitars playing together. This was amazing for me to hear. Wishbone Ash are a band from the late 60s who fuse rock with English folk. And they're my dad's favourite band. (laughs) Because of this, I've seen them live more than any other band. Don't get me wrong, they are very talented musicians and decent songwriters, but it's just not the type of music I would normally go out my way for. And at the age of 35, when I do see them live, I reckon I'm the youngest in the audience. My dad has been asking me since I started this podcast if I'm doing an episode on Wishbone Ash, and I've laughed him off, saying, they're not relevant at all. They come nowhere near the canon of heavy metal. And I can't even explain the gulf between bands like Death or I Hate God and the folk rock of Wishbone Ash. But here I am explaining how they were an influence on one of the most important bands in heavy metal history. K.K. Downing isn't the only prominent metal musician to cite their influence, and they will return in a future episode with another metal giant they helped shape. Wishbone Ash started off as a rock and roll band, and if you want to hear some of those dueling guitars, the track Blind Eye from their first album is really worth a listen. All the old men at their gigs keep heckling them to play it, so I guess it's an important one. They came into their own when they released their 1972 album Argus, which received chart success, and the tracks Warrior and The King Will Come are definitely worth a listen. Returning to Judas Priest, they took aspects of blues, progressive, rock and the emerging metal genre and created this beast of a song. It's interesting looking at pop music of the day. Bohemian Rhapsody came out around this time and it was another song which played around with song structure. But it was a popular hit as opposed to this niche genre. Even listening to Mamma Mia by ABBA, yes I'm bringing ABBA into a metal podcast, which came out around this time, the song structure isn't so straightforward either. Perhaps there was a shift in music writing where song structures were less rigid and it wasn't just prog rock musicians experimenting around with it. Victim of Changes was no different, and if the wider pop music world was only experimenting around, this was something that became quite core to heavy metal and would be picked up in a range of subgenres. Talking of structure, Sad Wings of Destiny is a solid LP. It's not that every song is a good song. I mean, this is something which is quite subjective as well. It's just a really well-paced album and from start to finish takes the listener on a journey. It's more than a collection of songs. If I never heard the lyrics to any of the songs, the music itself speaks emotion and pacing. 
it's such a contrast from their first album. It's almost like a different band wrote it. It was hard work making this album. Their record label goal didn't give them enough money. And despite recording at Morgan Studios in London, the money dried up. Our tab ran out, explains KK Downing. We couldn't even afford food and drink. That's how bad things had become. Here we were in one of the most famous studios around, with the likes of Black Sabbath and UFO also recording, yet living on the breadline. Halford went to the label and asked for £25 for each band member for living costs. Putting this into an inflation calculator, £25 in 1976 would be the equivalent of about £160 today, or $190 roughly. It really isn't a huge ask, even timesing that by five, so it's enough for the band. But the label refused, and so they left and joined CBS. The album took four months to record, and this hard work paid off. The album had humble success, peaking at 48 in the charts, but it was a success nonetheless, and with a new label supporting them, they could finally achieve what they wanted, to be a great heavy metal band. Their 1977 follow-up LP, Sin After Sin, reached 23 in the UK charts, but didn't break the Billboard 200. And this is another reason they're so important. Whilst heavy metal exists by this point in time, no band really wanted to take that label. Priest embraced it and ran with it. They were the first band to proudly accept that label, and because of this, managed to progress it further. There's so much more to discuss about these metal giants, but I'll continue in a future episode I have planned about them. Sad Wings of Destiny became their springboard to success. It was also the springboard for the genre, and this album helped develop new wave of British heavy metal. But as times changed, so did Priest. They were really good at being influenced by contemporary music, and as music got harder, so did they. Talking of their influences, we spoke a bit about Wishbone Ash earlier, but it's amazing to hear what Judas Priest, or specifically Rob Halford, listens to. Reading a Rolling Stone interview, he cites everything from Pavarotti to Dolly Parton to Tool. I think a factor that makes a musician or band head and shoulders above the rest is the ability to be influenced by a wide range of artists and channel it into your own style. I think Priest have done this really well. But Priest influence can be felt far and wide. They're another band where it's easier to say who isn't influenced by them than who is. Basically, every metal band that came since the late 70s has been influenced by Judas Priest, whether they know it or not. Not only did they help start Nawabum, but they were influential in the thrash movement which followed. Priest's vocals, seen as extreme for the time, laid the groundworks for extreme vocals moving forward, which extreme metal genres picked up. Something they brought to the metal scene was that leather look. In 1978, the band got a new look, and photo shoots and stage shows had them clad in leather jackets and trousers, studded with spikes. It might look like something out of Tom of Finland, but this was K.K. Downing's idea, not Halford's. The latter says it's a myth they did this so he could express his gay sexuality on stage. I had no interest in S&M, domination, or the whole queer subculture of leather and chains. My sexual preference was for men, sure, but I was, and still am, pretty vanilla. They did it because it looked macho and alpha male. 
Not surprisingly, the only places selling these sorts of leather clothes were fetish shops. As well as influence the metal scene, Judas Priest had an effect on the current leather scene, making outfits more extreme, with Halford becoming an icon in that world. With the band dressing this way, inevitably the fans started copying it and the look spread. Their stage show in the 70s went further too, with Halford brandishing a bullwhip. I'm sure there's a Devo joke in there somewhere. He also used to fire a machine gun filled with blanks at the crowd during their performance of Genocide, something he probably couldn't get away with these days. As mentioned, there's going to be another episode on Judas Priest where we'll look a bit more at how straight people have wrongly assumed things about the band because the singer is gay. Victim, to this day, is still one of Priest's most popular songs, and it's easy to see why. Musically, it's solid, coherent, and through juxtaposing techniques, keeps us excited. But lyrically, the content is relatable. Most of us have been through tumultuous relationships, and the pain of the protagonist resonates on some level, even if it is for different reasons. Victim of Changes rewrote the rulebook for metal, and became yet another important milestone in the genre's development. If heavy metal was a home, Black Sabbath built it, but Judas Priest decorated it. Join me on the next episode where we'll look at another incredibly important song, Ace of Spades by Motorhead, and I'll have my first guest. Thank you for listening.